Amen. Thank you so much, Chris. Go ahead and be seated if you would, and, and uh, welcome once again if you're with us in the building or online, maybe uh, joining online for the first time, kind of before you come to check out a service. would love to have you join us in person at some point, but my name is Jeremy, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and uh, we are in the book of Acts, and we've been studying the book of Acts. Today, go over to Acts chapter 27. We're going to cover 27 and 28, and that actually brings us to the end of the book of Acts, and we're going to have a few summary messages over the next couple weeks. Um, just in, in hindsight of everything that we've learned as we've taken the last year to really study through the book of Acts. So go to Acts chapter 27. The subseries is Mission Always Perseveres and right in line with that. Uh, today we're going to see as we kind of talk through this story, what we're going to do is like a flyby. We're going to do like a big overview of everything that happens in Paul's life um, and then what's happening on the, the, the scenes of this part of his story. And the title of today's message is Shipwrecked. So after we kind of do a flyby, then we're going to drop in at the end and we're going to talk about some, some practical takeaways, like how does this really hit our lives? What do we do with this? Okay, so Paul is on a boat and he's on his way to Rome. And the reason he's on his way to Rome is because he's on trial. Uh, he has to go before Caesar because of his testimony in Jesus Christ. And his, he just won't shut up and he keeps preaching Jesus and it gets him in a lot of trouble. And everybody wants to kill him. And now he's on trial. So he's on a boat on his way to see Caesar. Now, I love this um, passage because most of it takes place at sea. And if you know me, I love boating. I love boating. In fact, um, I actually am a captain. I don't know if anybody knew that or not. Now, here's a picture just kind of taken candidly of me in my boat. You know, I, it, was, it was just, you know, caught in the moment. It was not, it was not posed. It was not planned. It just, just kind of happened, you know. That's my vessel. And now, I don't actually have a captain's license, but I do have a t-shirt that says captain that my wife bought me for Christmas. Plus, I've watched several YouTube videos, right? So I figure that's just as good as being a captain, right? I have, been, I have actually been on White Lake on two different occasions, caught in a storm. And if you've ever been caught in a storm on the water, it's, uh, it's quite something. There's, it comes so fast and you're just overtaken. There's really nothing you can do. Um, and, and much of our story today is in the setting on a boat at sea. Now, Paul, this, this trip from Caesarea to Rome is over 2,000 miles. It, we, we, if we read the chapters, we might think, oh, this is just kind of a quick little trip. No, it's 2,000 miles. Picture Detroit to Los Angeles, somewhere in that range. I um, mean, on this boat ride, Paul finds himself once again in trouble and suffering. It's chaotic circumstances. It's disaster at sea. And in the middle of all of it, Paul's anchor and his focus on, on Jesus is amazing and God's glory is on display. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of uh, read through and summarize a little bit of these chapters. And then again, we're going we're to drop in and talk about how it hits us and what are the implications for our lives today. And so as we work our way through this story, it's fascinating. I'm going to be honest with you. There's a lot that happens in 27 and 28. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Paul covered 2,000 miles and we're going to do it here in the next probably 35 minutes. Um, but here's what I want us to kind of bear in mind as we, as we look at this text, the, the big idea. Kind of look at this, this passage through this lens today. It's all part of the plan. Okay, it's all part of the plan. There's a lot that happens in this 2,000-mile journey, and God's using all of it. Everything that happens, he's using it. There's a purpose for it. He's over all of it. He's divinely guiding and directing. He's in control. He's got this. And so um, I have, I have a, a map that we're just going to kind of throw up. So Kenan, you can refer to the map. Now, I have, I have my laser pen. You guys see my laser pen here? 
Brian made fun of me and he said I was like a nerdy college professor for using a laser pen, but I don't care. I've been so excited all week to use my laser pen and just kind of talk through this journey. So if I'm a nerdy college professor, so be it. But this will help us just kind of get a picture, a visual of what Paul actually went through and his journey, okay? So starting in 27, he gets on the boat here at Caesarea. You can see over there, Caesarea, and he kind of makes his way up and they come to Myra. And at Myra, they switch boats. Um, uh, they, they board an Alexandrian grain ship, and we find out that there's 276 people on this boat under the command of a Roman centurion. And a Roman centurion is someone who was uh, a, a commanding officer in the Roman army, and they called him a centurion because he oversaw 100 soldiers. That's where we get the word century or 100, okay? So on this boat, Roman centurion, there's 100 soldiers, there's the crew of the ship, and then there's a group of prisoners, and Paul is one of the prisoners on board this ship, 276 people in total. So it's not a small boat. If you look around the room, there's roughly 250 to 275 people here in the service today, including kids. Get a visual like we're on a boat together, right? It's been slow. It's been difficult progress. Um, because of the time of year, it's taken them quite a long time to get to Myra, and so they, they switch ships, they get on a different ship, and they make their way now down over here, and they land at Fair Havens, kind of like Grand Haven or South Haven. It's Fair Haven. It's a port city, right? And it's, it's about October-ish. It's very similar to this time of year. If you were to look at the globe, you would see that the Mediterranean Sea, this part of the world, is between the same latitude lines that we are here in the Midwest. So the weather is going to be very similar in October. It's cold, it's rainy, it's windy. And they knew it was not, not a safe time. After September, it was not safe to be boating on the Mediterranean. After November, it was like, just don't do it. It's, a, it's a, um, a complete gamble with your life. You likely won't survive. So they get, they're really, really slow, and they're already running way behind, and they get to Fair Havens, right? And here at Fair Havens, there's a bit of a conflict. Paul, now mind you, Paul is like preacher-prisoner. He's a prisoner on board this ship, and he goes, guys, um, I'm just saying, if we go any further, if we don't just stay here for the winter, it's going to end up in disaster. We don't want to risk it. We don't want to risk our lives. If we, if we leave port, it's going to be bad. We're going to lose the ship and loss of the cargo and loss of life. And the, the centurion, you know, confers with the captain and the crew, and they're like, well, we think it's not too big of a risk. We're going to just try to get to Phoenix here. Phoenix is about 40 miles up the coast of Crete. They're like, it's, a, it's just a quick journey, and Phoenix has a much better harbor. We realize we're stuck here for the winter, but the harbor is a lot better at Phoenix, so we're going to try to push off and get to Phoenix. So they reject Paul's advice, and they go ahead and go for it anyways. That's what we'll pick up in chapter 27 and verse 13. Now, when the south wind, when, uh, when the south wind blowing gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. They're trying to just stay really close to shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Okay, so they're, they're going, they're, they're trying to stay kind of close to land here, and, and they think this little southerly wind is exactly what they want because they're going to be able to kind of ride it and then push all, you know, all the way up. Uh, that's what they want is the southerly wind. But a northeast wind comes down and just, starts, just hits this boat, hits this ship, this storm, 
is, is overwhelming and they find themselves in a place where they're completely out of control. Now they've lost control of the ship and they're just being driven along by the wind. So they go on, they, they throw out all the luggage, they throw all the cargo. They're like, we just need to get rid of everything we can, but they hold on to the wheat because that was their cash crop. Like, like if we show up in Rome without the wheat, we don't get paid. So they're holding on to just everything that's necessary. Now look in verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They're like, it's done. So at this point, they, they've been blown. They were trying to get to Phoenix, and this northeaster storm has blown them out somewhere here into open water. They're concerned that they're going to run aground over here, but they have no idea where they are. And the sun and the stars, they haven't been able to see them because this storm has set on them for so long. It's cloudy, it's rainy, they can see nothing. Now, the stars and the sun were how they navigated. That was how they knew which direction they were going. So picture yourself, you're, you're completely lost at sea, in open water, you can't see land, there's no GPS, there's no radar, there's no radios, you can't call the Coast Guard. It would have been a terrifying spot to be in. I, I know I would have been freaking out if I was in open water and just you are at the mercy of the wind, okay? You're lost at sea. And they're, they're like, all hope is lost. We're done. It's over. And then Paul uh, sees the opportunity and seizes the moment. Look what he says here in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me <laughs> and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. It's kind of that, that moment in the Bible where Paul's like, I, I told you so. Like, I told you so. You've probably been on both sides of that equation at some point in your life, right? You were told so, or you did the telling so. But Paul's not saying, I told you so, or you should have listened to me as a way of like shaming them because he's angry. He's like, we're all gonna die. I told you so. Like, it's not that. He's like, you should have listened to me then, but hey, I need you to listen up, listen to me now, okay? Because the God that I serve uh, spoke to me, an angel came and said, we're all gonna make it, um, the ship is going to be lost, but not one life will be lost. God's heard our prayers. He's answered our prayers. Now, they're in this storm for 14 days. It's not uncommon uh, for storms to last that long on the Mediterranean. And, and on a certain night after about 14 days, they, they sense that they're getting close to land. Probably they could hear the surf breaking over the rocks. They heard the waves beginning to crash, and they're like, oh man, we're, we're close to shore. So they take soundings. What, what it is is finding the depth, like how deep is the water. And they found out the first sounding that they took, they were in 120 feet of water. And then a little bit later, they take another sounding, and now they're in 90 feet of water, so they know that the water's getting shallower, right? They're getting close to land, and so they're like, oh man, Look what they said here in verse 29. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors, note that, four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now, if you don't know boating language, uh, the stern is the back of the boat and the bow is the front of the boat, okay? Stern in the back, bow in the front. So they're being pushed towards land. They can't see anything because it's pitch black. They can hear the waves. They know they're getting shallower. So they throw four anchors over the back and they just get on their knees like praying for morning to come because it's dark and they can't see where they are. Now at some point in the night, this happens in verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat, that's the ship's lifeboat, into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away 
the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Let it go, okay? So someone was about to start singing Elsa right there. I can feel it in the front row over here. Let it go. They let it go. <clears throat> At this point, it was like any hope of, of some form of like, oh, we, we're just going to get on the lifeboat and row ourselves to shore was gone. They cut it, let it go, and now it had to be a miracle. It had to be God rescuing them. But just kind of get the picture here. Uh, these guys, these sailors, part of the crew, are like, we're going to go just put some anchors, more anchors in the front because we're concerned about the storm. And about. But what they're really trying to do is like, we're going to get on the boat. We're going to get out of here. Forget them, you know. And Paul goes, if they do that, none of us survive. Now, God had promised that every one of them would make it to shore and none would be lost. And in this moment, he says, if you do that, the promise is off. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. At this point, they need a miracle. It's an act of faith and it's an act of obedience. So once again, Paul stands up and he goes, guys, when day comes, we're close to land. Uh, we're going to have to swim for it. So get some food. You haven't eaten. You're going to need your strength. So they take, they take a meal. Paul prays for the meal. They eat. They get their strength. They throw all of the wheat and everything overboard now because they're like, we got to get this ship as light as it possibly can because we're trying to run this thing up on shore. We don't want to get caught in the rocks. So they're trying to be as high in the water as they can. Look what it says here in verse 39. Now when it was day, mind you, they're in 90 feet of water. They did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach. On it, they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors. Just note that. I'm going to say something about that in a minute. And they left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Now, in, in other translations, like in the King James or New King James, it adds one other piece of information to this little section right there. It says they were at a place where two seas met, okay? There's a reef, they're in 90 feet of water, there's a sandy beach up here, and they're at a place where two seas meet. The waves are actually kind of crashing together like this out in the water. Now, interesting uh, little side note. Back in 2002, um, there's a guy, his name's Bob Cornuke, and he was a former Los Angeles crime scene investigator. And he's, he's a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, and he goes, I'm going to go to Malta, and I want to just kind of investigate where did this actually happen, and is this legit? D does, does it actually line up with the biblical account? Now, if you've ever been to the island of Malta, we had a, 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 um, a gentleman in our first service, who's, he came to me after the service, he's like, I've been there, I got pictures, it was amazing, and he was telling me his whole story about how he's been to Malta. But Bob Cornuke goes to Malta, and he begins to investigate, and he knows we're looking for a few things. We're looking for a reef, 90 feet of water, a sandy beach, the place where two seas meet. And there's a, there's a traditional location on Malta called St. Paul's Bay where they say this is where the shipwreck happened, but it actually doesn't fit the biblical account. But around the other side, there's a, there's a bay that actually does, and it's, it's more obscure, it's more unknown, it's not the main part of the island, but it fits the biblical account. Along his investigation, Bob Cornuke comes across a guy named Ray Ciancho. And he begins to interview him, and this guy Ray tells Bob, hey, back in the, early, the late 60s, early 70s, I don't remember exactly, we were scuba diving out here off this reef, and we found four anchors. We didn't have any idea what they were, but we found four anchors in 90 feet of water. And he's like, not really? And it kind of pricks his ears. He goes, will you show me where you 
found those. So Ray takes Bob out, and they're standing on the beach, and, and he takes him to a place called the Muchnar Reef. And he points, he's like, right out there in that reef, that's where we found these anchors. They didn't have any idea what they'd found. And, and uh, Bob Cornuk at this time is like, he's kind of shocked and his heart skips a beat because he's standing on a sandy beach in a bay. He's looking at the place where two seas meet. There's a reef right there. And Ray said they found them in 90 feet of water. Pretty amazing find. They didn't know. Now, over time, Ray, the, the guys had, the, the team had given them to the National Maritime Museum, didn't even realize what it was. And expert analysis confirmed that they were Roman-era anchors, like they were right from the right time frame. And they found them right in the exact spot that the biblical account says that they would be. Today, they're on display at the Valletta's Maritime Museum, and they're called Roman anchors. That's all it's labeled. So if you ever go to Malta, stop by the museum. Now, we can't say with 100% uh, you know, proof that these are the anchors, but, but what Bob Cornuke says is, as a crime scene investigator, oftentimes I didn't even have near that much evidence to, to corroborate a case. He's convinced that they are the anchors from Paul's ship, and they might likely be. Just an interesting little side note. History would show us that. So they cast off the anchors, these four Roman anchors. They throw them, they cast them off, and, and the centurion goes, all right, guys, we're making for shore. If you can swim, swim. If you can't swim, remember the back of the boat's getting broken up now by the waves? Grab a plank and just start kicking and get yourself to shore. The soldiers stop the centurion, and they're like, Let's kill all the prisoners first. And you might be like, why, why would you do that? Well, what they understood was that as a Roman soldier, if you were given guard over a prisoner and that prisoner escaped, you were liable for their punishment. Oftentimes it was death. They were like, this is too big of a risk. If we, if we just do this, a bunch of them are going to escape and then we're going to be liable for it. Let's kill them so that doesn't happen. And the centurion goes, no, we're not killing any of them because he wanted to save Paul. Paul was a prisoner. So they all, they, they, they make for sure, some of them are swimming, some of them are kicking, but just as Paul said would happen, all of them survive, and the ship is completely lost and completely destroyed. Let's pick it up here on, on, in chapter 28, move over to 28 and verse 1, and we were brought safely through when we learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness. Now, typically when you show up on a foreign island, you're met with spears and hostility and they want to kill you, right? They were showed unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us because it had begun to rain and it was cold. Late October, early November. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them into the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging on his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Justice was actually a goddess that they worshipped. This snake comes out of the fire and, and latches onto his hand. I don't, know about, I don't know about you, but at that point I'd be like, oh, I, I'm done. Like, I wish I would have died at sea versus getting bit by a snake. I mean, that's not a fun moment, right? The snake latches on and they're like, oh, this guy must be a murderer. Clearly, I mean, and, I mean, if we're honest and you see a bunch of guys in like orange jumpsuits, you'd be like, and you see him getting bit by a snake, you'd probably be like, I wonder what he did, you know? I wonder what this guy did. And they're all expecting that he's going to die. So look in, in verse number five, it says, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they'd waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds 
and, and said, he's a god. <laughs> so he goes from being, in these people's eyes, he goes from being a murderer, woo, to being a god pretty rapidly, right? And we'll talk a little more about that in a minute. So this gets the attention of the, guy, the chief on the island. His name is Publius. And Publius is a, a pretty wealthy guy, and it catches his attention, and he invites all of these guys into his home. It's like, i got to meet this guy, Paul. He gets bit by snakes and, and doesn't die, right? Come to find out, Publius's father is sick with dysentery, which is an abdominal uh, disease. It's inflammation of the intestines. It's caused from a, a parasite or a bacteria, and, and Paul prays for him, lays hands on him and prays for him, and he's healed. Long story short, everybody else from the island comes, and, and they all get healed, and there's this amazing like revival that's happening on the island as Paul is, is staying focused on Christ and continuing in his mission. They're there for about three months uh, on the island of Malta for three months. They're very well taken care of, very well supplied. When it came time to, to set sail again, they give them a whole new boat, they, they fully stock and supply everything that they need on the ship. Interesting to note that this three-month period has had, had a ripple effect through history. If you go to Malta today, um, what started in those three months is still active today. In fact, Malta is the most religious nation in all of Europe. 98% of its citizens claim to be members of the Catholic Church. So Paul's time on Malta was actually very, very crucial. So they get everything they need, they get a new boat, they put them back on it, they fully stock it, and they send them off to, back to Rome. And, and, and very quickly they get to Rome, it doesn't take them long, everything's kind of in their favor now. And Paul gets to Rome, and within three days, he gathers all of the Jewish leaders together, and he just begins again to tell his story and testify. Now he's on house arrest, he's under the guard of a soldier, so he gathers everybody to him. And he's there for two years. Look what it says in verse 30 of chapter 28. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Now in this two-year period, some say that that was uh, shortly thereafter was where Paul was martyred. Other historians say Paul stood before Caesar. He was on imprisoned for two years stands before Caesar. Caesar's like, you've done nothing wrong. He lets him go, and he's got a period of time in the area, and then he ends up back imprisoned under Roman custody, and eventually Nero is the one who orders Paul's execution, and historically Paul died a martyr of beheading. While he's in prison, Paul is, is focused still on Jesus and still focused on the gospel, still focused on the mission, and he's writing letters to all of the churches to which he's visited in previous missionary trips, much of what we have in our New Testament today. Okay, so how does this, how does this hit our lives, right? We just covered 2,000 miles in about 23 minutes. That's, that's a fast trip. <laughs> There's a lot that's happened there. Here's the first, the first uh, point of encouragement, the first kind of takeaway from this story that we can look at today and we can have assurance and faith. It's, it's this, number one, stay calm, it's just a storm. It's just a storm. Paul's in the middle of the Mediterranean in a storm, completely driven off course. Has, they have no idea where they are. And he has this anchor because he's like, I, I know who I belong to. I know why I'm here. I'm not going to die at sea because Paul told me that I've, or I'm not going to die at sea because God told me that I still have to stand before Caesar. 
So he's got this hope in Christ in the middle of the storm, but the storm is that time in our life when it feels like we've completely lost control. Maybe, maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had some things happen in your life that were just chaotic. It wasn't along the course, and, and there's been something that's happened that has driven you along and completely taken control, and you realize you're helpless to do anything about it. Lost, disoriented, feeling like you're just at sea, you can't see land, you don't know which direction you're headed. The storm has a way of doing that in our lives, and if you've never been in a storm, at some point you will. The question is, though, what's your response? What's your reaction? Do you, do you throw up your arms and give up hope and like, you just all hope is abandoned, God's forsaken me? Or do you, do you hold like Paul and go, well, I already know that Jesus has work for me to do, and so I'm, this is not the end. It's not the end. God's actually using the storm to get them where he wants them to go. Catch that. The storm is actually part of the plan. He's, he's using it. God uses all of these things in our lives. Jesus didn't have any problem sending his disciples into storms if you recount a few New Testament stories. And for us today, God's not scared to send us into storms. Like, it's gonna happen. You might be in a storm today. Maybe it's a, a loss of a job or a broken relationship or a health issue. Or maybe, maybe COVID has, like, this whole thing has been got you spun and, you, and you've lost a job or you're like, you have to find something new and you're like, I, I did not see this coming and I'm not in control. It's interesting, in the storm, what happens? God promised these, these men, he said, all of you are going to survive, right? He speaks to Paul through an angel. He goes, there's going to be no loss of life. The ship is going to be lost. The cargo is going to be lost. No loss of life. You're all going to survive. There's a promise. God said this is going to happen. And then these guys get this crazy idea that they're like, well, we're just going to go over here and like let the lifeboat down and sneak away unnoticed. And Paul goes, if you do that, None of us survive. Why, why does he say that? Well, you know, the tendency for us when we feel like we've lost control is to try to regain control or to try to come up with like, okay, I know God's promise in my life is this, and so here's how I'm going to accomplish God's promise in my life. And it is a, it is a mistake to try to take uh, matters into our own hands and to try to control the uncontrollable. That's what you don't do. You see, God's promises and his faithfulness, they're contingent upon two things. You'd, what you don't do, you don't try to accomplish God's promise by your means. And then what you do do, I love this picture where, where you see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people come together. And we always, we always kind of ask the question like, well, is God's promise, is it, is it because of his sovereignty or is it, do I have a responsibility? And we try to separate out like God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And the, and the answer to the question, is the promise of God fulfilled here because of God's sovereignty or is it fulfilled of, because of the human responsibility? The answer is yes, <laughs> it is. It's, it's a mystery. What you don't do is you don't try to take matters into your own hands, figure out your lifeboat and be like, forget all y'all, we're going to shore. What you do do is you do your part. The centurion goes, if you can swim, start swimming. If you can't swim, grab a plank and start kicking, right? You've got a part to do. You know, God's promise to take care of us financially. His promise is that he would make sure that our needs are taken care of. But what do we have to do? We got to get a job and work hard 
and have a great attitude, be a valuable employee, build a business, offer something significant to people, care about your company, steward your money, and be a giver, be generous with your finances. Now, I think times we can get confused and frustrated with God because we're like, well, you said and you promised and you're not doing what you promised. And I know if I'm honest with myself, there's been times in my life when I'm like, God's not doing what he promised. But the reality of the situation was I wasn't doing what I needed to do. God's promises are absolutely true. But he didn't go, all right, I'm just going to like pluck each one of you guys from the ship and like put you on the shore. He's like, no, you got to swim. And if you can't swim, you got to grab, grab a piece of wood and just start kicking. You've got something to do here. God's promised to lead and to guide our lives, but we need to get in the word and we need to pray. We need to study his character and his ways. We need to surrender our will. We need to seek counsel and decision-making and listen. God's promised to save and to redeem people, but it's our job to share the gospel and to live and to love like Christ and to maintain a good witness, right? And we see, we see all through this, Paul's anchor is, he just, he just stays focused on Jesus, whether it's a storm or a shipwreck or the snake bites or Malta or whatever. It's like he's just focused on the mission of Christ. So it's just a storm. We're gonna get through it. God's gonna use the storm to get you to where he wants you. And then oftentimes, we, we end up in places like Malta, and that's number two is this, when you're in Malta, make the most of Malta. Malta is like that island, you're stuck, you're, you're, the, the storm has like taken control of your life and spun you and you don't have any idea where you are and now you're in this place that's completely unplanned and it's foreign, it's unfamiliar, it's isolated, it's an island and you're like, how did I, how did I get here? Have you ever, ever been in that place in life where you're like, I did not, I don't, how did I get here? Like, I had my, my map. I was gonna go from here to here. And God's like, how about we take this way? Like, you know, oh, hey, I got there. Like, God's roadmap is much different than ours. And, and if we don't embrace that and receive that, we're gonna live very frustrated with how our lives actually unfold. Maybe today you're like, that's me. I'm, I'm on Malta, like right now. Like I find myself in a situation, maybe it was an unwanted divorce. It was a loss of a job. It was something that like, I don't know how I got here. I didn't choose to be here. But here I am on Malta and it feels really foreign. It feels really unfamiliar. Maybe you've moved to a new place. Maybe you're new here today and you're like, this is just all brand new to me and it's uncomfortable. Malta is like a place of rest though. You see, what you see in, in Paul's life is they're, they're really well taken care of and, and unusual kindness. Luke notes unusual kindness. In fact, Luke is actually with Paul on this journey. He's writing now from the first person perspective. He's saying, we this and we that. Like he's writing an eyewitness account as he's written the whole book of Acts. Malta is isolated, but it's a place of rest and a place of healing. But God is very much at work on Malta. Malta is also temporary. You're not there for a long time, but while you're on Malta, you need to make the most of Malta. I love, I love just the, how the detail of the story, because you don't see Paul whining. You don't see him complaining. You don't see him being like, oh man, I'm just such a victim, and I'm angry at God for all these things that have happened to me. In fact, you see Paul out there like, <laughs> it's kind of just kind of comical to me. They, they get up on shore, unusual kindness. They start to make a fire, and Paul's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm just going to help, and I'm going to start picking up some, he starts picking up sticks. 
to help throw in the fire. And, and he, he's just being a good guy. He's just doing his part. He's not like, I'm too good to pick up sticks, right? Like, he's just, he's a leader. And he's just serving. And he picks up these sticks and, and throws them in the fire. And because of the heat, this snake jumps out and, and bites him. I think Paul knew this, though. I think Paul knew that leadership is so much more about serving and influence than it is about position and title. Do you see that? You can be a leader in your workplace even if you're not the boss or the CEO. That's just title and position. The leader is the person who has the influence. That's the leader, regardless of position and title. And Paul knew that it was more about serving and influence than it was about position and title. I mean, he's, he's a prisoner on this boat, right? He's got no title and no position, yet he's the one who everybody's listening to and following. He picks up all of his sticks, just serving no, no menial task is below him. Throws it in the fire and then the snake bites onto his hand and, and the people are going, oh man, any minute now, he's going to fall over dead. Just watch. And he doesn't. What does he do? Number three, this is what he does. He shakes it off. You see that? Shake it off. The snake in scripture is, is symbolic of, of the enemy himself. It's symbolic of Satan. I just find it so fascinating that God didn't stop the snake from biting him, but he did stop the venom from killing him. Do you see that? Like, could, could God have stopped the snake from biting him in the first place? Of course he could have. He didn't keep the snake from biting him, but he kept the venom from killing him, and that's kind of the point. It's not the bite. You don't die from the snake bite. Nobody bleeds out. I mean, it would, be hurt. It would hurt, right? But you don't die from the snake bite. You die from the venom that gets in your veins and destroys you from the inside out. And in this situation, they're like waiting for him to die. It's not the bite, it's the venom. How many times have you had somebody in your life like do you wrong or say something to you? And it was like a personal attack. And man, the, Paul said in, in, in other places in, in scripture, he said, don't be ignorant. We're not ignorant of Satan's devices. Like he is at work and he's a snake. And there's times in your life when you will, you will feel the snake bite of Satan. It's usually in personal attack or something that happens and you feel like, man, I've been bitten by that snake. And here's the thing. If you don't forgive and you're not quick to let go, forgiveness is like, is sucking the venom out. That's what forgiveness is. If you let that venom get into your veins and get inside of you, it will kill you. The poison kills you. Forgiveness is the antidote to the poison. Forgiveness is, is sucking the poison out. And you're not gonna, we can't go through life for too long as a follower of Jesus and not at times experience snake bites. You know what I'm saying? You're gonna get bit by the snake, but it doesn't have to kill you. You shake it off. You know, when that person speaks evil of you, or maybe when those words that your, uh, your father or your mother said about you rise up on the inside, you, you shake it off, right? Maybe on Saturday when you get beat by Michigan Snake, <laughs> what do you do, Wolverines? You shake it off, right? You shake it off. And you, you knew that was going to come at some point in the message. I've been feeling a lot of pressure today because I always run my mouth about Michigan Man, we'll get him next year. We'll get him next year, okay? You shake it off. You shake it off. People are, are watching Paul and what happens. They're like, oh, this guy's going to fall over dead. Nothing happens. 
And now all of a sudden they're like, oh, he's a God. And Paul just stays right in the middle because he's like, Jesus is my anchor. People are going to judge. People are going to judge me to be uh, a murderer. People are going to judge me to be a God. I don't care. You know, the, the thing to take away from that is, is this, that we've got to stand secure in who we are in Christ. And we just got to stand in the place that our judgment is before God. People will always make huge judgments and assumptions based on very little information and think that they've got the picture pegged. And they're wrong on both extremes in this. That's why we don't fly on people's approval. We don't soar when everybody's applauding and loving us. Because if you do that, you know what happens when they reject you? You crash. Because they've become your source. So they become your judge. Paul's like, call me a murderer, call me a god, whatever. It, it means nothing because it's all a bunch of just nonsense. He shakes it off and he moves on. You know, there's a lot of things that happen to us in life, whether it's, a, whether it's a storm or whether it's a shipwreck because of the storm or whether it's a snake bite. And these things happen to us and we are all, to some vary, varying degrees, we are all victims of sin and of the fall. You could tell me your story. You could be like, you don't know what I've been through. And I'm like, you're right. I don't know what you've been through, but I know what I've been through. You don't know what I've walked. I haven't, I haven't walked through what you've walked through, but I've walked through what I've walked through. And, and to varying degrees, we experience each one of these things in our lives. And what do you do? Do you play the victim? Do you go, man, I feel so, so sorry and I'm so angry at God and how could he let this happen to me? Nope, you never play the victim because God's using all of it. He's using the storm to get you where he wants you. He's using Malta as an opportunity. He's even letting the snake bite you, not kill you, because people are watching how you conduct yourself and what kind of person of faith you are in the middle of suffering and unfortunate circumstances. And Paul knew this. He's like, oh, this is an opportunity. Shake it off quick and just start telling them about Jesus. Start talking about Jesus. Here's the thing about being a victim. We're all victims to some degree. But because of what Jesus has done and the victory he's given us, you don't have to stay a victim. Amen, church? You don't have to be a victim. You don't have to stay a victim. He's, he's defeated the enemy for you and, and your life is in his hands and it's under his control. And so you can live victorious no matter what storm hits, no matter what shipwreck you incur, no matter what snake bites you. You're always victorious in Christ Jesus. And Paul knew this. He's like, I can't, I'm not dying here on the island. I'm not dying at sea. I'm not dying in the shipwreck. I'm not dying from the snake bite because I've got to go stand before Caesar. Here's, here's the last takeaway. So we, we stay calm. It's just a storm. We make the most of Malta. We shake it off. We shake it off. We shake the snake off. And number four, we don't get too comfortable. Okay, don't get too comfortable. Look what it says in chapter 28, verse 23 here, of Paul while he's in Rome. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And then skip down to verse 30. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. 
Paul knew this, whether he's in the storm at sea, whether he's in the shipwreck on the reef, whether he's on the, the beach getting bit by a snake, or whether he's in Rome and he's imprisoned, that he's like, my life is, is for the message of Jesus Christ and for the glory of God. And it doesn't, I'm not concerned about all of what happens to me. I'm just concerned about making much of Jesus. And that's how we live free of being victims. Do you see that? You can be free of being a victim if you can trust that God's like, hey, it's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. The storm, the shipwreck, the snake bites, Malta, the sickness of Publius, his father, Rome, imprisonment, like it's all part of the plan. We live free when we stop asking, why me? And we start saying, what God would you have for me to do now? Paul doesn't uh, miss an opportunity. He doesn't, he doesn't assume that God's all about his comfort and his peace. Man, if we think that God's all about our comfort and, and he's all about like all of just our peace and comfort, we're gonna be very upset with him when the storm hits. Have you, have you experienced that in life? We're gonna be very upset with him when our ship gets wrecked. We're gonna be very upset with him when we get bitten by the snake and we're gonna go, why would you let this happen to me, God? And God's like, it's not gonna kill you. It's not gonna kill you. I'm working through it. Life is so much more not so much what happens to us, but how we respond to what happens to us. That's the difference between a victim and a victor right there. You don't have to be a victim. Paul takes this time of imprisonment, uh, whether it was all at once or on two different occasions, doesn't matter. Paul doesn't miss the opportunity. He begins writing letters to the churches. These become the epistles and make up two-thirds of our New Testament. Now, I'm thankful that Paul didn't sit in prison feeling sorry for himself because he was in prison, but he's like, I'm not, this is what I'm gonna do now because I can't do anything else. And now we have God's holy word, the Bible in our hands today because he did that. Now, I get that people come from uh, varying different places. And like I said earlier, I, I haven't walked where you've walked. I, I don't know what you've been through. You don't know where I've walked. You don't know what I've been through. But here's what I can say with, with absolute certainty is that God is, is faithful. He is faithful to you. He's faithful to fulfill his promises. You don't try to take control of it. You do your part and he will always come through on his promises. I would love to take a moment, even as we just reflect this idea that like, this is all part of the plan. Like God's got this. He's, he's sovereignly guiding it, divinely moving me where he wants me, even though my life feels like it's spinning and I'd love to take a moment and pray together and just begin to surrender. Maybe today you're, you're in the storm. You're like in the storm and you're just, you're spinning and disoriented. Maybe today you're in the shipwreck and you're like, my life is just getting battered by these waves and it's everything that I was, that I was holding onto is, is my security. It's being broken apart. Maybe you're on Malta and, and you need to make the most of Malta. Maybe today you're, you've been, you're thinking about that snake bite. You're thinking about how you've been bit and you're like, you gotta shake that thing off. It's not gonna kill you. Get rid of the venom. Or maybe today you need to be reminded that you've come through all those things. You've, you've made it through the storm. You've escaped the shipwreck. You've survived the snake bite. You endured Malta. You made it back to Rome. Don't get too comfortable. Don't get too comfortable, but just look for the opportunity no matter what scenario you find yourself in. Why don't we pray as we continue to worship this morning? Lord, this um, passage, there's so much in here. And Jesus, we, 
we just think about how Paul did such a great job of staying centered on you and anchored in you and on mission. And Jesus, you were always his hope. He were always his hope. And it was by your grace that he had the strength to do what he did. And it's by your grace, God, that we can do the same. We can survive the storms. We can escape the shipwrecks. We can come out alive when bitten by a snake. We, we make the most of Malta. We don't get too comfortable. There's some people today, Lord, that, just, that need to shake off the snake. Shake it off. I pray that even in these moments of worship and just surrender that there would be healing and, and that there could be forgiveness that would, would draw the venom of the bites out, the snake bites out. We worship you, God. You are divine and you are in control and you are sovereign and you call us to obedience and to surrender and, and I pray that we would, we would do that and we would see your promise and your mission come to fruition in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.